James chapter 2. We're going to read verses 14 to 26. Hear now the reading of God's word. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to him, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see, that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see, that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. This is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, we ask now that you would speak to us. For Lord, we know that you are the God who speaks. For you are the word. And the word communicates, the word conveys, the word comforts and counsels. And Lord, we pray that as we sit at your feet with open hearts and ready hands, that you would indeed speak. For your word is not simply audible puffs of air that have no power for, no, Lord, your word is living and active, and it brings dead things to life, and it brings transformation that had no power to change itself. Lord, we ask that you would indeed encourage us during this time where it's so easy to be discouraged, so easy to feel frustrated, so easy to feel defeated. God, we ask that you would minister and empower us, educate us and edify us, exalt us into your very presence so that once again we can know that we are children of our great king, the king who rules over heaven and earth, the king who has conquered over sin and death. Minister us to us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. So back when I was in college, there were a brand of shoes, boots for the fact of the matter, that were so popular across university campuses everywhere. And of course, I'm speaking of the wonderful Doc Martens. Doc Martens. For those of you who aren't aware, they're a British shoe company that's still somewhat popular. But in the early 2000s, Doc Martens were extremely popular because everyone was wearing it. And when I say everyone, I literally mean everyone. The hip and happening kids wore Doc Martens. Even the lame loser kids owned a pair of Doc Martens. They were so pervasively popular. In fact, they were so popular that you would often hear hilarious stories of kids trying to pass off knockoffs as the real thing. I remember when I was in college, I heard a funny story where a kid apparently got his pair of Doc Martens from his uncle who shipped his pair from New York City. Yeah, not England, New York City. And for weeks, this kid would parade all over campus with his Doc Martens on, being so proud, being so, you know, all full of himself. But then within two months, his boots started falling apart. Right before his very feet, they were disintegrating. 
Right? Which is so odd because Doc Martens are high-quality shoes. In fact, back then, I don't think they do this now, but back then, they actually gave you a lifetime warranty. Right? That's how proud they were, how confident they were of the quality of their product. And so, obviously, this student is so confused. He's so confused why his high-end boots are acting so cheaply, but he figured it out when he read more closely the label attached to the shoe. It read, Doc Mortens. <laughs> Turns out, this poor kid was given a cheap knockoff pair by his beloved uncle, evidenced by the lack of quality that a genuine pair would exhibit. Now, that funny story serves as a general warning when it comes to matters of faith. Because there are people out there in the world who will claim they possess genuine name brand articles of clothing when in fact they have cheap knockoffs so also there are people in the church who will claim they possess genuine faith when in reality they have a knockoff faith or as james refers to it a dead faith what's that let me explain we're continuing our sermon series entitled grow up where the whole point of this series is to take a look at the characteristic of a growing vibrant christian faith and today we focus on the characteristic that shows a person in possessing genuine faith and that's the person who exhibits outward compassion outward compassion according to our passage here in james chapter 2 when a person claims to possess genuine Christian faith, they will always back it up with the quality of said faith by works of compassion and mercy to the poor. And so with that stage set, three things I'd like to share with you in today's passage. First, we're going to talk about how a genuine faith is not simply a claim of possessing faith. Number two, we're going to talk about how genuine faith is always compassionate to the poor. And then we're going to end it with how a genuine faith is always the result of believing the gospel. A genuine faith is not simply a claim of it. A genuine faith is always compassionate to the poor. And finally, a genuine faith is a result of believing the gospel. Let's begin with the first point. A genuine faith is not simply a claim of faith. Read again with me verse 14 of our passage where it says the following. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If you have a pen or a highlighter, please circle or underline that word, says says in the original greek in which this letter is written it's the greek word legay legay we get our word legitimate we get our word legal from it and by using this word james is trying to spotlight a type of person that's often in the church a person that i call the talking christian the talking christian now what in the world is a talking christian because all of you in here talk am i talking about you hopefully i'm not because when i refer to someone as a talking Christian, I'm referring to those who simply give lip service to their faith rather than simply living out their faith, okay? You guys have heard that expression before, you can talk the talk, but can you walk the walk? You've heard that, and you know what it means. It's when a person claims they can do something, or they claim they, can, they have something in their possession, but when it comes time to prove it, they can't, right? And we see expressions of this so often in our culture. In fact, back when I was a little kid, there was a hilarious movie that really exemplified this. There was this movie called They Call Me Bruce. Anyone see that movie, They Call Me Bruce? It's a funny comedy story about a Korean immigrant who comes to the United States. He flies into L.A., and back then, there weren't that many Koreans in L.A. at that time, and so he would always get picked on, always bullied, and whenever he does, he would say these words, Hey, with my left foot, I can kick that knife out of your hand. With my right foot, I can break your nose. With my left hand, I can poke your eyes out. With my right hand, I can break your neck. Look at me. I'm an oriental. 
And then he would proceed to do these Bruce Lee-like moves and says like, whoa. And usually, the people bullying him or teasing him would freak out. like, it's cool, man. It's cool. And they would run away. But every now and then, it would backfire. Because sometimes he would encounter a person who would respond, come on. <laughs> they were like, this is how I like it. Let's rumble. Let's go. And he would be confused. He'd be stuck. Why? Because he could not back up his claim of knowing martial arts because he didn't know anything. He was a wimp, right? The only thing he had in common with Bruce Lee is that his name was Bruce as well. Now, hopefully none of you guys would ever do such a thing where you would pretend to have skills of death on the streets because you will expose yourself to real danger if you do. But you know, James tells us that's not nearly as dangerous if you made the kind of claims that he warns us not to make. Because if you're the type of person who says you have faith simply because you say you have faith, okay, without any sort of manifestation, confirmation, or verification of that claim to faith, you will put yourself in severe spiritual danger. Yeah. What kind of danger, you ask? Take a listen to what he says starting in verse 19. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Do you hear what James is saying? He's saying, if you're the person that says, I have faith simply because you say so, then your faith is fundamentally no different than the faith of demons. Let me say that again. If you call yourself a Christian because you just say you're a Christian, then your faith is fundamentally no different than the faith of demons, a demonic faith. Now, you might be wondering, what is a demonic faith? Well, simply put, a demonic faith is a deluded faith, a deluded faith. Let me explain. You know, demons do the work of satan we all know this right they follow his leadership they follow his example and here's the thing about satan the bible has a lot to say about him but do you know the most common description the bible gives of the devil it's liar deceiver this is why he's called the father of lies in john 8 44 this is satan's constant modus operandi this is his mo this is the mindset he's always has he has the mindset of a liar where he's always lying to everyone including himself. Yeah. The Bible says that the most self-deluded, self-deceived person ever is none other than Satan. And it's this self-deception that James is referring to when he talks about a person who has the faith of demons. They have the kind of belief of themselves that's totally untrue because they're lying to themselves. They're the kind of person who says, yes, I have genuine Christian faith in me, when in fact they're not a Christian at all. And it's such people like this that Jesus gives these very stern, ominous words to when he says this in Matthew 7, 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only those who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Hear me when I say this. If you want to know whether or not you possess genuine faith, you got to do more than just speak words of faith. You must actually show works of faith. One more time. If you want to know whether or not you possess genuine faith, you must do more than speak work, words of faith. You must actually show works of faith. Okay? Consider again these words from theologian Warren Wiersbe as he says, People with dead faith substitute words for deeds. They know the correct vocabulary for prayer and testimony and can even quote the right verses from the Bible, but their walk does not measure up to their talk. They think their words are as good as works, and they are wrong. If you want to know whether you possess genuine faith, it takes more than talk. It takes also works now you might be wondering okay 
If in order for me to know if I have genuine faith, I have to, you know, display works, then what kind of works should I be displaying? That's a great question. And to answer, let me go to my next point. A genuine faith is always compassionate to the poor. One more time, verse 14, but let's take it down to verse 17. We read, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Here, James tells us the kind of works that is evidence of genuine faith within. And what kind of works is that? Verse 15, it's works of mercy and compassion to the poor. It's the work that feeds the hungry, that shelters the homeless, that clothes the naked, that aids the sick. It's the type of work that is typically referred to as works of justice and mercy. Works of justice and mercy. Now, one question that you might be wondering right now is, why does James focus on this kind of works as the marker of genuine faith. After all, he could have identified and spotlighted other works of faith that have a more religious flavor to it, like, you know, teaching other people how to study the Bible or sharing Jesus with others in the form of evangelism or going to other countries uh, to do missions. Why, instead of, uh, of focusing on those obvious religious works, does he focus on the works of mercy and faith? Mercy and justice. Well, let me see if this personal illustration can help. You know, I have five kids, and I love them deeply with all my heart, like truly, madly, deeply. And if you ask me why I love my kids, I will give you some very deep, profound, existential reasons, like, oh, my kids help me realize that it's possible to love someone more than I could ever love myself, or my children help me understand that the way to true happiness is through sacrifice and responsibility. You know, something very philosophical, very complicated. But if you ask my kids why they love me and their mother, which we have many times, they'll always say the same thing. And this is a real, I'm being sincere when I say this. They've said this to me. And I'm sure you parents have heard this from your kids. Why do you love mommy? Why do you love daddy? My kids always say, because you give me food to eat. Because you put clothes on my body. Have your kids ever said that to you? They always say that to me, right? And they're sincere about it. And at first I was like, really? <laughs> That's why you love me? Because I give you food, I give you clothes. And at first I was somewhat disappointed because the answer just sounds so superficial. It sounds so shallow, really something so common, so rudimentary. But when I thought about it, I figured out that I'm the shallow person. I'm the superficial one. Let me explain why. You know, for people who are privileged to live at a certain social economic level, basically middle class and above, the idea of eating food regularly and getting new clothes routinely to where you can wear it are things that we take for granted because they're so easy to do. And because that is so, we tend to minimize and downplay how significant it is to be able to eat every day, to wear clothes on our back, things that allow a person to live. But children, little children, who've not yet lived long enough to be spoiled by their economic privilege, they can still see more objectively than us of what a real miracle, what a real blessing it is to be able to eat every single day, to be able to put on clothes and even get new ones when the old ones go bad. You see, when you understand this, then you understand why James spotlights works of mercy and justice as a key marker of true faith. Because that recognizes properly the worth of a human life. 
You see, if there's anything that Christianity gets right is that it properly understands the value of human life. This is why true Christianity will always be pro-life, pro-family, pro-compassionate to the poor, the needy, the widow, the orphan, and the strangers. Because these promotions recognizes the value of human life. Now notice that I didn't say it promotes the value of human life that is Christian, but promotes human life, period. Now, why do I say that? Well, it turns out that there are some misguided Christians who truly believe that the people who should benefit and be on the receiving end of the church's works of mercy and justice are only those who share our faith, other Christians and only other Christians alone. And shockingly, they'll point to our passage as justification for such misguided thinking. For example, they'll point to verse 15 and 16 that says, If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? You see that phrase, brother and sister, at the beginning of 15? James is clearly referring to brothers and sisters in Christ, other Christians. And so these misguided Christians in the church today will say, You see? James is limiting the scope of the church's work of mercy and justice to only be confined for other people who share our faith. But here's the problem with that. If James is actually saying that, he is directly contradicting other clear teachings of the Bible. Let me give you two examples. The first is Leviticus 25, verse 35. It says, If any of your fellow Israelites become poor and are unable to support themselves among you, help them as you would a foreigner and stranger so they can continue to live among you. Galatians 6.10, Therefore, whenever we have the opportunity, we should do good to everyone, especially in the, to those in the family of faith. Here are two passages, one Old and New Testament, that both say the same thing, and that is God's people, yes, show mercy and kindness and compassion to those in their community of faith, but it doesn't end there. It goes beyond the community of faith. It goes out into the world. So here's the question. Why does James use the phrase brothers and sisters as those who receive the works of the church of mercy and justice and compassion? Why? if it's not what these misguided Christians think that it is. Well, I came across a quote that I think nails the, uh, that nails the hammer on the head. That, yeah, you know what I mean. That, that really gets to the answer to that question. This is what Fyodor Dostoevsky once said in his book, Brothers Karamazov. He says, the more I love humanity in general, the less I love man in particular. In my dreams, I often make plans for the service of humanity, and perhaps I might actually face crucifixion if it were suddenly necessary. Yet I am incapable of living in the same room with anyone for two days together. I know from experience, as soon as anyone is near me, his personality disturbs me and restricts my freedom. In 24 hours, I begin to hate the best of men. One, because he's too long over his dinner. Another, because he has a cold and keeps him blowing on his nose. I become hostile to people the moment they come close to me. But it has always happened that the more I hate men individually, the more I love humanity. End quote. Brilliant. What's he saying? He's saying it's easy to say that you're all about compassion and mercy, but it's actually hard to actually do the work of compassion. You see, right now it's in vogue, it's trending, it's hip, it's popular to say you're all about for justice and mercy and and compassion for the poor and helping the less fortunate. But it's not until you take that first step of compassion that you really mean what you say with your fancy words. And here's the question, who are the first people who are the beneficiaries of that first step of mercy and compassion? It's the people right next to you, the people who you, 
I don't know, go to church with your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ? You see, by focusing on brothers and sisters, James is not limiting the scope of our compassion. He's simply identifying the first step that would prove your fancy claims of being all about compassion. By first being compassionate to those around you. And of course, the very idea of a first step assumes there's a second, third, fourth step that takes you further and further out than where you began, which means the compassion that should be here in the church doesn't end. It goes beyond the walls of the church. You see? So does the church do works of mercy and justice for the needs of the world? Of course. It starts in the church of God, amongst the family of God, but it further extends out to the world that needs the compassion of Christ. Now, it's at this point that I probably indicted you guys by saying all this, because let's be brutally honest. I think most, if not all of us, can really relate more to the Dostoevsky quote rather than what James says we should do and be in our passage today. And so here's the question. How do we work around this? How do we deal with this? And this leads me to my final point to answer that. A genuine faith is the result of the work of the gospel. Let's pick it up where we left off, starting in verse 21. We read, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. So James ends our passage by giving us two examples of how to acquire genuine faith. Now, before I go any further, however, let me give you these words of warning. You must be very, very, very careful when you read these verses that I just read. Because if you're careless and you just give a very superficial reading, you will come to some conclusions that James is not making. You will believe James is saying something that he is absolutely not saying at all. And one particular misunderstanding that you will think that he is saying is that God does not care about faith. That the only thing he cares about are your works. Okay? Your works alone. Whether you're talking about works of mercy and compassion, like feeding the hungry, sheltering the homeless, or even the works of the individual that he cites, Abraham and Rahab. Now, if you don't know who he's referring to by mentioning Abraham and Rahab, just go home tonight, read Genesis 22 and Joshua 2 on your own. It's not important right now that you know what he means by citing these two people. What is important is that by citing these two individuals, it gives the appearance that James is saying that God does not care about faith, that he only cares about works. Let me tell you right now, that is not what James is saying. He is not saying that at all. One more time, listen more carefully. Verse 18 to 20. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well, even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Here James is simply making the obvious point. You can never separate. You can never segregate. You can never sever your faith from works. That's all he's saying. You can never separate. You can never segregate. You can never sever your faith from your works. Because if you do, you will die. Okay? Here's an illustration of what I mean. Salt is a pretty important thing. Amen? Right? Not only do you need it to enhance the flavors of your food, but you actually need salt in order to live. Can I get any amens from our doctors and biochem majors? Right? Salt is needed for life. 
In order for you to think, in order for you to breathe, in order for you to move, in order for your organs to function, you need salt in your body. Now, did you also know that salt is made up of two substances, sodium and chloride, and these two substances exist separately on their own. But I'm going to tell you right now, you would never want to encounter them alone. Do you want to know why? Because these two things by themselves will kill you. Sodium is a very explosive substance. Chloride is a toxic poison. Okay, so by themselves, they take away your life together. They give you life. And that same principle applies when it comes to the relationship between faith and works. Okay, works by itself will kill you spiritually. Faith by itself will result in a dead faith and it will also kill you as well. And when you understand this, then you understand the kind of faith that makes you acceptable or justified before God. It is a faith that works or simply a working faith. Let me say that again. The kind of faith that makes you acceptable and justified before God's presence is a faith that works or a working faith. Now I know you theologians in here, you know, who are big into like Luther and you've read through Galatians and you've gone to Sunday school, maybe you have some seminary training. You're like, wait, 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 PJ. I think this is wrong, right? Because I know for a fact that I've learned that we're only saved by faith alone. In fact, I know you have said that. You have taught many sermons where we're only saved by faith and faith alone. In fact, doesn't the Bible somewhere say that, like Ephesians or something? Ah, you must be talking about Ephesians chapter 2. Let's go there. Starting in verse 8, we read, But someone, oh, excuse me, uh, it says this, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourself, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Huh. Oh, wait, hold on. Keep reading. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus, to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. How about that? The classic text, the standard Bible passage that tells us that we're saved by faith alone also says that faith also works. You see, the works that Paul is condemning is the works that separated from faith. It's the chloride without the sodium. But the faith that Paul is commending is the faith that always works. I love how the great German reformer Martin Luther once put it. He said it this way. We are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. One more time. We are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. You see? So there you have it. That's genuine faith. It's a faith that works. But now we come to the question of hand. How do we actually acquire this working faith that is genuine? Well, we see two expressions in this passage that tell us how. The first expression is found in verse 23. Abraham believed God. And then verse 25, Rahab received the messengers. According to James, the way we acquire genuine saving faith is when we believe God by receiving his message accepting his message. And what message is that? It's the message of the gospel. Because what is the gospel? The gospel is the message that says that God doesn't just say he loves you, he actually shows you that he loves you. How? By being compassionate to you in your moment of desperate need. But unlike our compassion to others, which recognizes the value of a human being, God's compassion to us restores the value that we once had before sin as human beings. Let me say that again. 
Unlike our compassion that simply recognizes the value of a human being, God's compassion for us restores, returns a value of a human being that he gave back to us. How? By coming into the world as Jesus Christ and paying for the full penalty, the full punishment of your sins and my sins. Why? Because he loves you. You see, the Bible says because of our sin, we are wretched. Because of our selfishness, we are wicked. Because of our sinisterness, we are nothing but waste. We're garbage. We have no value. But yet God, knowing our pitiful condition, still loved us unconditionally. And when we acknowledge that love, and more importantly, when we accept that love, that love transforms us and brings us to life, and it creates by the power of God's love, a faith that starts working. And God, in response to that awakened faith as a result of his love for us first, makes us justified before him, acceptable to him. It's when we first accept God's love for us that we eventually become acceptable to him. We are justified by a faith that works. Do you guys see? See, one of the things that I worry about sometimes is the idea that many of you will express to one another, to me, look at my spiritual Doc Martens. Look at my faith. Look at how I am, PJ. I'm all about this. I'm all about that. But you know, the thing that really matters more than anything is not just what you say, but also what you show. Think about that. Think about the claims of your Christianity. And ask yourself, with every claim that you have made, is there a corresponding work that can back up the words that you say? If not, the response is not to panic. The response is to accept God's love for you in Christ Jesus so that it can quicken in you a faith that will start working, giving you the assurance that you are pleasing to God. Do you guys see? This is what it means to have genuine faith. It begins by you first acknowledging and accepting God's merciful and compassionate love for you before any works, before any faith even existed. Do you see? All right. Then let's start walking our talk in our spiritual Doc Martens. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for how you show us in your word about what it means to truly live out our identity as children of God. Father, we live in a world, we live in a city that is always trying to show the counterfeit as the real thing. And Father, we hope and pray that that would never be true of us from a spiritual standpoint, that we would never make any claims that would not show the quality of that claim through the works that come out of it. Lord, we know that it's easy to talk all the time, but it's quite another matter to walk. And Lord, we live in a city where you give ample opportunity to walk out our faith. Lord, there is such need. There is such trouble. There is such hunger. There is such homelessness. There is such brokenness that, Lord, you are calling your people to answer. But Lord, we dare not attempt to do that until we first have responded to your love for us in your son, Jesus. And I pray that would be all of us here so that as we go out into the city, that we would do works, not of the flesh, but works of faith. Works that has the flavoring of salt that enhances the beauty of our God. 
Help us to truly live this out. For we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. We're now going to